0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. From
1: WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies. Today, how long COVID leaves millions of people with impaired brain function and what they can do about it. Neuropsychologist James Jackson says many long COVID sufferers find they struggle to remember things, perform basic tasks, and solve problems, often leading to a loss of employment, income, and important relationships. Jackson's new book is a practical guide for long COVID patients and their families. Also, we'll talk about parking with writer Henry Grabar, author of the new book, Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. He says he's not anti-car, but it's time to make some changes. And it's been 50 years since Al Green released his album, Call Me. Critic Ken Tucker reminds us why it's considered the singer's greatest.
0: What a beautiful time we had together.
1: That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend.
0: Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies. On Thursday, the federal COVID-19 public health emergency declared by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention came to an end. But millions of Americans who contracted the disease continue to suffer from symptoms, many of them debilitating, a condition known as long COVID. Our guest today, James Jackson, is a recognized expert on the cognitive and mental health impacts of long COVID, which he says are quite common. He writes in a new book about people who are happy standouts in their jobs, who after getting COVID are chronically affected by fatigue, cognitive impairment and depression, or more serious symptoms such as delusions and hallucinations. Jackson's book offers practical advice to patients suffering from long COVID with suggestions on finding professional help and information on treatments and strategies for dealing with their symptoms. Jackson's knowledge is informed by his work with hundreds of long-COVID patients, his previous work with patients suffering from post-intensive care syndrome, and to some extent by his own struggles with obsessive-compulsive disorder. James Jackson is a licensed psychologist specializing in neuropsychology and rehabilitation and a research professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. He's also director of long-term outcomes at the Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship Center at Vanderbilt. He's the author of more than 150 scientific papers. His new book is titled Clearing the Fog from Surviving to Thriving with Long COVID, A Practical Guide. James Jackson, welcome to Fresh Air. It's
2: really my pleasure to be with you, Dave. Thank you. So let's
1: talk about long COVID. First of all, how common is it? Do we know how many people suffer from it, either in the United States or worldwide?
2: There's a range of estimates that people report in the book. I talk about the number 200 million. Uh, that's a huge number of people and that's an estimate that is widely quoted. I think there's some debate among experts about whether it's more than that, about whether it's less than that. But that's worldwide but if,
1: just to be clear. We're not talking about country. Right?
2: Worldwide, worldwide. And I think the worldwide piece is important because this isn't a United States problem particularly. You know, this is very much a global problem and indeed Some of the resources that uh, could be used effectively to treat long COVID, those are even less available in some developing countries than in in the United States. So that number, 200 million, that's more people than live in the country of Mexico.
1: And people who get it aren't simply those who spent weeks on a respirator, right? It affects people who had all kinds of experiences with the virus, right?
2: I think the idea initially was that if you were critically ill in the ICU with COVID, if you were on a ventilator, you would likely have or at least be at risk for these bad outcomes. And, and certainly you are. Certainly those people are. But I think the, the thing that surprised many people and the thing that has proved to be true and alarming is that vast numbers of people who were not hugely sick, that is, they had a very mild case of covid Some of them report they had almost no symptoms at all. Those are among the people who are profoundly impaired cognitively, from a mental health standpoint, physically. And this is a little bit of a mystery. That is, many people with mild cases are profoundly debilitated, and some people with quite severe cases are doing fairly well. So we're not exactly sure why that is, but uh, it's clear that there's not a relationship, not a robust relationship between Severity of COVID and the likelihood of these long COVID symptoms. They cast a long arc in the lives of people who were not very sick.
1: You have an interesting history in dealing with cognitive effects of illness. And in the 1990s, you and a neuroscientist, Ramona Hopkins, did some research on patients who had suffered from acute respiratory distress and, in many cases, had spent a lot of time. In intensive care units who looked at the cognitive impact here. Tell us about what you did and what you found.
2: Mona Hopkins is a preeminent neuroscientist in Utah, and in 1998, she published the very first paper on cognitive outcomes, cognitive impairment in ICU survivors. She studied people with a condition called acute respiratory distress syndrome, and she found, I think in one of the papers, that 78% of people that she studied were cognitively impaired. That was in 1998. In about 2000, the research that I started to engage in began in earnest. We published a paper, I think, in 2003 looking at ICU survivors generally. And we found that between a third and half of those people who had been fairly healthy before, they weren't cognitively impaired, they developed brand-new cognitive problems. Uh, In subsequent studies and in subsequent years, we have found out that those cognitive impairments ICU survivors have are as similar as we see in people with moderate traumatic brain injuries. In many cases, they're as severe as we see in people with early Alzheimer's disease. So huge numbers of people, lives derailed by cognitive impairment. And this is important because I think these insights about the effects of critical illness certainly informed a lot of my thinking about what might happen following covid and unfortunately um, things did come to fruition in the way that we feared they might that is even people who were not in the icu have profound cognitive problems
1: you know it was interesting when you wrote about this research that you did and this was pre-covid it was other illnesses that put people in the icu for periods of time You asked the patients that you were doing research on whether they had ever been referred to somebody to deal with cognitive issues. What did they tell you?
2: Yeah, they told us in one voice that that had not been the case. And um, that was shocking to me and a little hard to believe. But as I consulted my colleagues around the country, they really had the same experience. I, I think, unfortunately, physicians thoughtful and well-meaning excellent clinically etc they have a certain notion about what constitutes a brain injury a brain injury is a stroke a brain injury is you know you fall off a ladder and you crack your skull on the driveway that's too often what is defined as a brain injury and and of course it is the problem is There are a lot of other ways to get brain injuries. You can be in the ICU on a ventilator. You can have not enough oxygen get to your brain, something called hypoxia. That can be a brain injury. You can be delirious, which is deleterious to your brain. That can cause a brain injury, and you can have long COVID. That too can basically be a cause of a brain injury. So we need to change the paradigm a little bit so that people start appreciating, gosh, you can have this medical pathway to a brain injury, and we need to refer you to cognitive rehabilitation. It's not only that you're in Iraq and you survive an IED explosion. It's not only that you're on the football field and have a concussion. There's a medical route to a brain injury, but no one, almost no one gets referred for rehab. We have to change that.
1: All right. So in the last few years, you've been seeing a lot of these symptoms from people who had suffered from COVID and had been in intensive care. One of the things you write in the book about this issue of people dealing with long COVID is that they're both battling their illness and the disbelief in the medical establishment. People just haven't made this connection enough.
2: It's a huge difficulty. And and it is fighting a war, if you want to use this metaphor on on both fronts, right? It's fighting a war on both fronts. And that is you're trying to put out the fire or at least deal with the fire that is your illness and you're being uh, battered and buffeted, beaten down by this interaction with healthcare providers who you feel are dismissive of you, who all too often subtly say, you know, have you been to a psychiatrist? You don't have any physical symptoms. Maybe this is all in your head. People are explicit about this, uh, primary care providers, physicians, to varying degrees. But the net effect is patients often feel ashamed. They often feel a stigma. They often feel like they're being called lazy, or at least that is implied that you just need to buck it up, get better, right? So that, along with the reality of these symptoms, makes it a tough challenge for these folks to endure days and weeks and months.
1: We're going to take a break here. Let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with James Jackson. He is a research professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University who has treated many patients suffering from long COVID. His new book is Clearing the Fog, From Surviving to Thriving with Long COVID, A Practical Guide. He'll be back to talk more after a short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, OSIA. Their Mega Moisture Duo features two of their clean vegan bestsellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths, wherever you get your podcast.
1: Our guest is James Jackson, a psychologist specializing in neuropsychology and rehabilitation and a research professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. He's done research on and treated patients suffering from the cognitive effects of long COVID. In a new book, he describes impacts on brain function and mental health from long COVID and offers practical advice for patients and their families. You know, you say that a lot of, uh, a high percentage of patients um, that you deal with say their brains just don't work anymore. But you notice that, you note that what they're experiencing is different from Alzheimer's or dementia generally. You want to tell us how and what kinds of things they are experiencing?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, Let's talk about that. So when we think of Alzheimer's disease in particular, we typically think of this drip, 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 this sort of worsening progression that occurs where a year in, you're at a particular place cognitively. Two years in, uh, that's worse. Three years in, it's even worse. You're progressing. You're declining. With uh, long COVID and cognitive impairment, in most of our patient's Thankfully, we're not seeing this consistent progression, degradation of cognition over time. It's a lot more like a brain injury in that way. And when we think of a brain injury, what we see are really significant cognitive problems, but often they're a little more static. That is, they don't necessarily get worse, and sometimes they get better. So it's probably a little more like a brain injury than it is like Alzheimer's disease. The exception to that is that In older patients who develop COVID and then long COVID, in some of them, they already had a cognitive decline process in play. It was underground, hadn't emerged yet, hadn't really raised its head through the surface yet, but that process was at work. So in those folks, that declining process, we think, is probably accelerated in the context of long COVID, and some people are transitioning more quickly than they otherwise would To dementia or Alzheimer's. It's a concern in our older folks. And our older patients, we refer them to Alzheimer's disease research centers. We get them dementia evaluations. And our younger patients, we're hugely concerned about them. But when they say, hey, doc, I'm 30 years old. I'm 35. I'm 50. Do I have Alzheimer's disease? I'm happy that the answer generally is no, you probably don't. Let's check it out. But you probably don't.
1: Right. So, what do they experience? I mean, there are different kinds of impairment. Just briefly, what are the kinds of impairment they are experiencing?
2: Sure. Um, So, the thing that people talk about the most is they talk about memory problems. They often say, "Oh my gosh, my memory is not working." And um, memory, I think, is the term that most people know. If you survey people and said, "Hey, list the nine cognitive domains," let's list eleven. You know, let's list cognitive. Functions, memory is the thing that everybody would reference, right? So when people say memory, that's what they think they mean. It may not be what they mean. So um, often they have memory problems, but more typically the problems are with processing speed that has to do with how quickly you can process information and with attention and with this thorny thing that we call executive functioning. And I, I say thorny thing because executive functioning is associated with ability to function in so many areas. People with executive dysfunction, problems with function, they have problems driving. They can't manage their money. They have a hard time managing their medication. They can't plan for the future. So executive dysfunction, processing speed, inattention, and some deficits with memory. And if you put it together, because often people have all of that— it's a really toxic cocktail, and what it means for people is they have a hard time functioning in the workplace, they often aren't functioning well socially, they're not reading social cues, they're disinhibited. It's a huge problem at its worst.
1: Right, and so often many quit their jobs because they just can't perform anymore, and then they lose their income, and they lose social relationships, and, and terrible you know, cascading effects occur. So let's talk about what one can do to to try and get better. You know, uh, you say that there are strategies and treatments. Some are restorative. That is to say they try and help the brain regain some of its functions. But a lot of it is really designed to help patients manage the changes in their brain function, you know, their deficits in ways that improve their lives. What are some of the strategies that, that help people?
2: Yeah, I, I love this question. Um, back a decade ago, a little more than a decade ago, I spent part of a year in Ely, England, a lovely little town outside of Cambridge at a cognitive rehab hospital, a very famous one at the time, founded by Barbara Wilson, an eminent neuropsychologist. It was called the Oliver Zangwill Center. And when I went there, the goal was to really learn how to do cognitive rehab. And uh, it was all about compensation. It was about teaching people skills to offset the deficits they had. One big one we worked on was something called goal management training. It's really the best empirically validated. It's the the treatment with the best evidence for problems with attention and executive functioning. And, And when I learned about goal management training, frankly, at the beginning, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, this is a strategy. How much does a strategy help? And as I looked at the uh, lives of the patients that were being treated at the Oliver Zangwill Center, I quickly changed my tune. I, I, I recognized that although this is strategies, it's planning, it's learning to use notes, it's managing your day differently, I realized that if people are integrating that into their lives so often, it is a game changer. And we see that, that when people get cognitive rehabilitation, not in every case, but reliably, They do better, they get better. That contrasts, that compensatory strategy approach, that contrasts with more of a neuroplasticity-based approach where the idea is that we are going to engage your brain in a particular specific way, and in so doing, we're going to try to leverage this natural process for growth that is at work. Those are neuroplasticity-based strategies And often we recommend both of them, compensatory approaches, neuroplasticity-based approaches. And uh, when we wed those together, people often get a lot better.
1: It's it's, it's interesting because I imagine a lot of people who are really frustrated that their brains just aren't working as they used to. And you're telling them, hey, you're going to give me lists and post-it notes. But it really is a matter of sort of Regular use and ways of thinking—you know—reminding yourself to be thinking about the way you're thinking, and over time, and with practice, it actually makes a difference, and people can function in a way they didn't before. They could drive, for example, if they didn't before, or you know, attend a, a work meeting and 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 function effectively.
2: Absolutely, um, the goal is that these strategies and ways of thinking that they become integrated, that they become embodied, you know, second nature, if you will. Often, one key thing that happens in the context of those strategies is in the area of problem solving. Where people get derailed often is that they can still solve problems with these brain injuries, but normally it might take them not very long. Now it takes them five times as long. Now it takes them 10 times as long. So one of the things that happens is we teach people how to prioritize. We teach people that old saw, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. You know, we're going to break some challenging tasks down so that you're not overwhelmed. There are a range of things that we're going to teach you. The people that are the experts experts in this space are speech and language pathologists and I would say you know, may their tribe increase. We need more of them. They are an underrated uh, set of contributors in this long COVID battle, and uh, they've become many of them very dear to me because I've seen the way they've improved the lives of our patients.
1: And are these kind of treatments? This strategizing, because it's you know, it's not a drug, it's not a surgery. Are they covered by insurance typically?
2: They generally are covered by insurance. I'm I'm, I'm happy to say uh, that piece isn't the challenge so much. The piece is finding these folks who don't necessarily grow on trees. In large and medium-sized cities, you will find SLPs. That's the abbreviation SLPs. But in rural America and small towns, There are not so many of them. Uh, For that reason, we're really thankful for telehealth, which has been a game changer during this um, pandemic season, because often people are able to get uh, speech and language pathology support virtually, get that cognitive rehab virtually. And in our experience, that still seems to be very helpful.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the other kind of treatment where you're actually hoping to get— get the brain better? I mean, to kind of use its regenerative properties to function better. Uh, I mean, this is a big subject, but generally, what kinds of treatments are there? How well do they work?
2: They're often technology-based. So often there are programs that are available either on a computer or an iPad. Sometimes they're proprietary. Some of them are broadly available in the community. You can buy a subscription to a brain training program. It's a complicated topic because there have been... A number of uh, bad actors in the last 20 years or so in this space who have noticed, I think, that there is a burgeoning interest in the brain and they have uh, created programs, things of that sort, charge people a lot of money for them, and there's no evidence of their efficacy. I was a skeptic about this as recently as probably five or six years ago about the notion that technology-based solutions could improve the brain. But um, as more and more research emerges, I've become more convinced that this is absolutely an avenue that we need to explore. There are companies grounded in rigorous research. Uh, There's a program called Brain HQ that a lot of people engage in. There's a game that is FDA approved that you can play on an iPad, a video game, and it is FDA approved for children and teens with ADD and ADHD. So we think that there are things like that that could be really helpful perhaps to people with cognitive problems in the context of long COVID.
1: Before we go, I wonder what's happening in terms of research on finding a cure for long COVID. I mean, well, let me ask this. Do we understand the biological mechanisms underlying long COVID, How? how this virus creates this these, these ongoing problems?
2: I think it's a really complicated question. And the reason it's a complicated question is because although we've been talking about long COVID as if it's a monolithic thing, as if it's a monolith, there in fact are probably many different kinds of long COVID. You know, there's long COVID with primary cognitive problems. There's long COVID primarily driven by fatigue, et cetera. And all of these likely may have some different Mechanism. Many of those mechanisms likely have to do with inflammation. They may have to do with clotting. Uh, We've got a lot of work that we need to do. That's both in the basic science space. That's in the translational, the clinical space. We need more randomized controlled trials. Um, We were very successful, as you know, at mobilizing um, our best scientists, our best experts to develop a vaccine in record time. Huge success. I feel like that same urgency, that same commitment to doing something game-changing has too often been absent in the context of long COVID. I think we need that same urgency that we had to develop the vaccine to be aimed at developing long COVID therapeutics. Uh, We're making some progress, but I think we've got a long way to go.
1: Well, James Jackson, thanks so much for speaking with us.
2: It's really my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Have a lovely day.
1: James Jackson is a research professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University and director of long-term outcomes at the Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship Center at Vanderbilt. His new book is Clearing the Fog, From Surviving to Thriving with Long COVID, A Practical Guide. Al Green is widely considered one of the greatest pop singers ever, known for his soulful ballads. His commercial peak was in the decade of the 1970s. Rock critic Ken Tucker realized recently that this year is the 50th anniversary of what he considers Green's greatest album, Call Me, and he knew he'd have to do a piece to celebrate this rhythm and blues landmark. Here's Ken.
0: The time we had together Now it's getting late and we must leave each other
3: In Al Green's song, Call Me, the singer addresses a woman he's passionately in love with, who, at this moment, is not feeling that same passion. What they once had isn't working for her anymore. Green acknowledges her fading feelings for him, even as he can't resist reminding her of, as he puts it, the beautiful time we had together. What he wants to tell her most of all is that she can call him any time, and he'll be there for her. In Al Green's musical universe, men and women are almost always operating on a level romantic playing field. this superb nine-song album for high records in Memphis at Royal Studios in close collaboration with co-producer Willie Mitchell. Essential to the sound was the high rhythm section, which included the three Hodges brothers, bassist Leroy, Charles on keyboards, and guitarist Teenie Hodges. Howard Grimes played drums. In the 1970s, the warm intimacy of the music that came out of Royal Studios attained an almost mystical force. When I went there to interview Green and Mitchell in 2003, Willie Mitchell yelled at me when I moved my hand to sweep away a spider web in a dusty corner of the studio. Don't touch it, he said. It's all part of the sound. I was not at all sure that he was kidding. of three hit singles off Call Me, along with Here I Am, Come and Take Me and the title song. Green's phrasing is unique. He uses a falsetto croon that can deepen into a growl, enunciating lyrics conversationally. Call Me was Green's sixth album and includes two superb covers of country music, Hank Williams' I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry and this one, Willie Nelson's Funny How Time Slips Away.
0: I do Well
4: I
2: guess I'm doing time It's been so long
0: And it seems like
5: It was only Yesterday
3: The album also includes Jesus Is Waiting, a gorgeous early example of the gospel music that would at one point take over Green's career when he became the Reverend Al Green. And the most underrated song on Call Me is Stand Up, a quietly vehement piece of sinuous funk with politics that imply as much about the importance of black assertiveness as anything that Sly Stone or the Isley Brothers or Marvin Gaye were offering during this same period.
0: What's
5: What's the been? Yeah.
6: promised.
3: When I read that this was the 50th anniversary of Call Me, I had a visceral reaction. I was momentarily overwhelmed
1: recalling the pleasure that this album has given me over the years. Rock critic Ken Tucker. Al Green's album, Call Me, was released 50 years ago last month. Coming up, we'll talk about parking with Henry Grabar, author of the new book, Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend.
6: Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares how Betterment's innovation can help Americans save. The real innovation for Betterment
5: about a decade ago was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging, that includes taking a long-term view and not getting distracted by market volatility. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. And what Betterment did is they basically said, no matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Learn more about automated investing and
6: saving at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed.
5: Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's fresh air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next, from tech to tradition from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app.
1: Terry Gross has our next interview. I'll let her introduce it.
5: Drivers and passengers, how much time have you wasted circling around and around searching for a parking spot. Have you nearly gotten killed by someone competing for the same spot? Are you outraged by prices charged by commercial parking garages? Or maybe you live in a suburb that's been paved over for parking lots that are now half empty. My guest Henry Grabar tells the stories behind these familiar problems in his new book, but he also writes about larger issues that you might not be aware of, He describes the book as, in part, the story of how we destroyed our cities in search of more and more available parking and the people who helped make it so, the mall builders, mobsters, police, and the politicians, the garage magnates, and community groups. There are new alternatives in the works for dealing with traffic and parking. He covers those, too, in his new book, Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Grabar is a staff writer at Slate who covers housing, transportation, and urban policy. He was the editor of the book, The Future of Transportation. Henry Gobar, welcome to Fresh Air. Before we get into the big issues, can we trade an example or two of what we find most frustrating or weird about parking? I'll start with, in the north, when you dig out a spot for your car so you can drive out after a snowstorm, what people have often done in Philly is put a lawn chair or a trash can or some piece of furniture in the parking spot to reserve it, to say, this is mine. I dug this out, and I'm keeping it. Um, and I don't know if, uh, if that happens in Brooklyn where you live, but where does this tradition start? At first, I thought this is just a Philly thing, and now I realize it's not.
4: I've seen that practice in Chicago, where I lived when I was writing this book. I know it happens in Boston. I believe it happens in Pittsburgh. I think pretty much wherever it snows and there is street parking, there will be claims made on the street. And I I think what's interesting about this practice is not only there's the kind of implicit threat of violence that, like, if you were to <laughs> That's move right. one of these objects and take the space that you might be beaten over the head with it, but also that it's defended by by politicians. Uh, you know, I think when Boston discussed, for example, limiting this practice to 48 hours after a snowfall, meaning you could make a claim, but only for 48 hours, a city councilman said, the issue speaks to the basic principle of what it means to be an American, like the gold miner... <laughs> And pioneers, residents have a right to stake their claims. (laughs) And I think you can see the entitlement in the entire American parking picture in in that one expression.
5: Okay, your turn. A frustrating or bizarre issue relating to parking that you've dealt with.
4: I mean, I just hate not being able to find a parking space. I find, like, the advanced knowledge, the premonition that I will have trouble parking um, discourages me from driving. And I, I think about it from the moment I get in the car. Um, how I'm going to be able to leave the car behind when I get out of it. And it it stresses me out from the moment I get behind the wheel.
5: And this is a good moment to mention that your book isn't anti-car, but it's looking for alternatives to the problems that we have. So I have one more I want to mention to you. Parking garages drive me crazy. First of all, they charge a fortune now. Uh, And second of all, the way they're designed, like – the ramps I particularly hate in the garages where there's like six stories or more is that sometimes they're really narrow spirals. So you have to drive like super slowly or else you're going to like crash into the wall. And it's almost like dizzying. And then in the parking spot itself, the parking spot is often way too small with a pole on either side. <laughs> so it is so easy to smash into one of those poles or not be able to open the door because other, the other car is too close to you.
4: Yeah. Parking garages are, I think, some of Americans' least favored places. And one thing I learned when I was working on this book was that at the dawn of the auto age, as parking garages become a fixture of American downtowns, are some city planners and architects who think that parking garages will assume the grander of Europe's great – or America's great train stations. <laughs> the idea that um, parking garages as these sort of transportation destinations will become these kind of centers of activity. And obviously that never came to pass. I think there's this kind of lore in American history of of the garage as a place where bad things happen or secretive things perhaps like um, – The exchange with Deep Throat that led to uh, the uncovering of the Watergate scandal. I mean, that that happened in a parking garage. Um, So the bottom line here is that while many people in the parking industry like to think they are in the hospitality business and they're offering (laughs) a service – Uh, The reality is it's a commodity, and the only important thing about a parking space is that it's in front of you when you need it. And so uh, obviously they do try to maximize the amount of cars they can park uh, per square foot, and and they're not really that interested in creating a pleasant user experience.
5: I'm going to just mention one more thing. In Philly, they're very vigilant about ticketing you like a minute after your meter has expired or towing you if you're in a tow-away zone. And you might not even know it because the sign might be covered by trees. (laughs) So you can't even see it. And if you are towed, your car is taken to the land of junkyards far away from the central part of the city where you've parked. It's really expensive just to get to where your car is. And then you're met with like fee after fee and it's hundreds of dollars. Is that pretty typical in cities?
4: I think so. Um, Essentially, parking enforcement serves as uh, a subset of what is now known as revenue-driven policing. And the idea here is that cities take advantage of these parking laws to try and uh, get as much money out of uh, people as possible, but not in the way that you would think, right? I mean, I think this is a common misconception. Meter rates are actually, for the most part, pretty low in most cities, which is to say they are below the market clearing price that would create empty spaces on every block. And um, Most cities make more money from illegal parking fines than they do from meters and garage taxes put together. So, for example, New York City in 2015 made $565 million in parking fines. It's the biggest category of fines that the city issues, but they made just $200 million from parking meters. So... What's essentially being run here, and I don't know if cities are conscious of this, is a system that is poorly designed that almost seems like the incentives are in favor of illegal parking because for the city, that's where they make their money. And I think you see this also in, in, you know, with, with deliveries, like a truck making deliveries, often double parks, can rack up in New York or in Boston like tens of thousands of dollars in fines every year. And you could ask, well, maybe the city should create delivery zones in which a truck could pull in and park and, and make that delivery without blocking traffic. But then you realize the city makes a lot of money from illegal parking fines. So this status quo in which it's very challenging to find parking and it results in, in all these uh, these fines and, and sort of complicated processes to get your car back, um, this to some extent works to the city budget's advantage, unfortunately.
5: One of the main points – of your book is that parking has determined the landscape of cities and suburbs. And that might seem obvious, but it might not to our listeners. So I want you to explain what you mean by that.
4: Sure. So when I think about parking's effect on the landscape, one of the things that I'm thinking about are the laws that were passed in the 1950s and 60s in this country that require that every type of building have a certain number of parking spaces. So if you look into the code of your city or suburb, you will likely find a table like this. And it will be very, very long. And it will have almost every conceivable land use you can imagine, from the obvious ones like apartments and offices to ones that seem um, perhaps uh, exceedingly specific, like a dirty bookstore or a nunnery or a tennis court. And, uh, and for everyone there's a requirement of a certain number of parking spaces. Now, when you remember that a parking space takes up about 300 square feet, if you're going to require 10, 20,000 parking spaces uh, with these various uses, you are ensuring that perhaps half your property now is consumed with parking. And you see this when you drive around and you look at a post-war commercial strip in a suburb. You will notice that the buildings float in the parking lots like these little buoys in the sea and all that parking is required. I mean that's the law that is that is ensuring that those properties tend to be um, half parking by area, and if you go to a historic downtown, um, those types of buildings, right, um, uh, two three stories uh, that, that you know they're they're semi attached or, or attached, forming an uninterrupted street wall of storefronts and offices above, or perhaps housing that kind of stuff is simply illegal to build in most places. Uh, so um, there's a reason that we've, we've stopped building things the way we used to. And the reason in large part is parking.
5: So some of the really nice things about um, older cities wouldn't be legal now if you're starting from scratch and building?
4: I think almost every built form that you can imagine from the early 20th century would be illegal to build in most cities today, perhaps because of zoning. But I think more fundamentally because of parking, right? And So I'm talking about things like um, uh, on the housing front, um, brownstones, triple-deckers, three flats, bungalow courts. Every city has its kind of vernacular attached or semi-attached housing that was built in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And these are often some of the most beloved parts of cities and some of the most expensive housing at this point. Um, Unfortunately, uh, according to most residential codes in most places, they are now illegal to build. This is also drove office buildings. I mean something like the Empire State Building, right? If you were to um, supply the, uh, the book-mandated amount of parking for the Empire State Building today, you would, uh, you would have a surface parking lot stretching over 12 Manhattan blocks. So um, clearly you begin to see how some of these older forms uh, become incompatible with, uh, with the modern demand to ensure a certain number of parking spaces with every property.
5: Some people are trying to re-envision what city streets might look like if there was less on the street parking. And that includes re-envisioning what curbsides would look like. What are some of those visions?
4: The one that comes first to mind, of course, is what we saw uh, during the pandemic summer in, in 2020 when um, when people were nervous about eating inside and all the restaurants opened up seating in their parking areas. And for me, that was a revelatory moment, because I had become aware over the course of writing this book that there was something weird going on here, where urban real estate prices were higher than ever. And yet this space at the curb, this public space, which in some cases was the most valuable land in an American city on a square foot basis, was being given away for nothing, provided you used it for one thing, which was storing your car there all day. And so there's a natural kind of arbitrage going on there. And you see people taking advantage of this Going back to the 1960s and 70s, I'm thinking about things like ice cream trucks, taco trucks, like people selling things out of the curb. Like there's this realization that if this space is going to be free, like maybe I should try and take advantage of that and, and run a little business here. Um, and then in, in 2020, you see that realization go mainstream with all these restaurants that had previously considered their parking to be an absolute untouchable asset right like you know you want to take away parking for a bike lane they would they would tell you you had blood on your hands and then suddenly in 2020 they decide you know what maybe it doesn't need to be parking after all maybe it could be restaurant seating and i think that's a that was a wake up call for city planners it was a wake up call for for some of those restaurants themselves it was also a wake up call for for regular people to to see this space uh through another set of eyes and think well you know Maybe it could be something besides curb parking. It's been curb parking for 100 years. So it can be difficult to imagine what might happen at the curb if we were to decide to do something else with it.
5: What do you think can happen there besides uh, restaurants?
4: I think one of the most urgent needs for cities is to plant more trees. I think that's, a, that's something that will help them adapt to climate change, uh, shade the streets, clean the air, and, and perhaps most importantly, help them deal with these series of increasingly intense rainstorms that we've seen that have brought flooding to many urban neighborhoods. And one of the reasons that the urban flooding problem is so bad is that so much land has been paved over to make way for parking. And so if you begin to take some of those curb spaces and you and you decide, you know, we're going to use this, this space to plant greenery that can soak up some of that water, it can catch rainstorms where they fall uh, before they overload the sewer system and flood people's houses. So that to me seems like an obvious uh, possibility. And then perhaps uh, a broader conception of that would just be to say, create more public space. Um, you know, I think uh, while it is important that we have access at the curb for people who um, need to, to drive up and, and perhaps uh, you know, can't park four or five blocks away for one reason or another, um, there's an enormous possibility here uh, to create space for people. Thinking about like places kids can play, bike lanes, um, uh, things that would help us reimagine a city in which parking was slightly less important and in which there were more options to get around some other way.
5: I want to ask you about bike lanes because I appreciate that there are bike lanes and I appreciate that a lot of people are bicycling. It's good for the environment. It's good for, um, you know, parking and, and traffic. It's easier for the people who are bicycling to get to and from places because they don't need to buy a car, which is so expensive, and so on. At the same time, some bike lanes are just really poorly designed and it's really unsafe for the bicyclist and often unsafe for the driver and i mean for example whether the bike lane is on the right or the left of the lane or lanes with the car when you have to turn in the direction of the bike lane it's really dangerous cuz you know typically when you're driving there's no traffic on the side that you're turning from you know you're in the lane where there's there's no moving cars to your right But there might be bicyclists there now. Have you seen like a sensible kind of bike lane?
4: I'm glad you mentioned that, Terry, because something happened a few days ago in Brooklyn that's been on my mind. Um, uh, A father of two was biking home from a grocery store in Brooklyn, and he was killed by a truck driver um, turning right across a bike lane. His name was Adam Uster. Um, And uh, I've been on that bike lane many times myself. It was, in fact, my route home from work for many years. And uh, I continue to be surprised that cities keep drawing out facilities like this and calling them safe places to bike when they really evidently are not. Um, It is possible to create a safe space for biking where people turning across the bike lane perhaps have to wait for a different signal to make that turn or something like that. I mean, it's not nuclear engineering. It's not rocket science. We can figure this out. There are cities that have built safe bike lanes New York isn't one of them, and then you come to the question, well, why isn't it one of them? One of the people I talked to in my book lives on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and he made it his mission to build a bike lane on Central Park West um, because a, a girl riding a city bike had been uh, run over and killed by a garbage truck there several years before. And uh, building this bike lane, which happened, by the way, required taking 200 parking spaces, And that became a source of major conflict in the community. In fact, there was a lawsuit filed by a condo board um, along this route. And to me, that conflict says a lot about our priorities.
5: Henry Grabar, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Henry Grabar spoke with Terry Gross. His new book is called Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. He covers housing, transportation, and urban policy for Slate. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorok, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challender, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly Seavey-Nesper. For Terry Gross and our co-host Tanya Mosley, I'm Dave Davies.
6: Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winner's Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried-and-true elements of good planting design. Identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winner's Color Choice shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR.